Hi lovely people, welcome to Dog Wizardry. A charming dog trainer having noteworthy conversations with thought leaders in an assortment of fields. Voted most original podcast on the internet. Here is Dog Wizardry. Welcome to Dog Wizardry. We got one hell of a show today. Probably my favorite show that we've done. Definitely my favorite show that we've done so far. We have Stephanie and Mark McCabe from Training Between the Ears. I edit myself out of much of this podcast because I sound like an idiot. And also, they just have a lot of amazing things to say. Now, the reason I had Mark and Stephanie on is because, as many of you know, there's a civil war going on in the dog training world between the all-positive side and the balanced side, whatever you want to call it. Uh, reward-based versus whatever. I prefer to call it three-quadrant versus four-quadrant. But the point is 98% of dog trainers fall within one of these two sides. And what Stephanie and Mark have created is something very, very different. And it's quite unique. And I'm proud to have them on the show. And to their credit, it's very rare, at least in my experience in the dog training world, to see somebody educate a dog and advocate for dogs in a completely new way. They talk about perception modification, they talk about free behavior, and they talk about things that I've never heard any other dog trainer talk about before. So without further ado, let's just jump right into it. Well, I think the the first thing we have to acknowledge... um, really in any meaningful talk about dog training these days is that there is fundamentally a civil war in the dog training world. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's between one side that, you know, use whatever term you want for it, but, um, they have used purely positive. Um, most of them now say evidence-based or science-based. Um, and I'm not using either of those terms as a pejorative. We just have to have some kind of labels. Um, on the other side, I would refer to as force-based. Um, a lot of the people in that community, of course, like to say that they're balanced trainers. Mm-hmm. Um, many of them have no balance at all. They use punishment and force for virtually everything. Um, but there's, there's a wide range there. So um, one of the things that's unfortunate is just that we can't have some easy, neutral set of terms for the two sides just to talk about them because nobody feels they're neutral. But... I think on the um, on the the force based side, um, certainly things are changing. Uh, people are becoming uh, more attuned to using rewards, more um, connected to the emotional nature of the dog. But that's some people. The overall view of that community is is uh, largely that you just have to get the animal to behave well. Mm-hmm. If it can just you know go lay down on a bed quietly while strangers come and go. It doesn't really matter what the dog thinks of things, just as long as it behaves that way. Mm-hmm. Problem solved and things are going to be good. On the, what I prefer to call the reward-based side, um, there's often actually too much concern about the emotional state of the dog mm-hmm. to the point of it not being an effective thing for helping change the dog's emotional state but basically a reason for not doing everything. Um, And when I say not doing everything, I mean just lots of things that people on that side 
uh, don't want to do in training. And that doesn't just mean not punishing dogs, um, although certainly that side of the equation is very anti-punishment. Um, but often just not even trying to train dogs through certain problems and, and just trying to control the environment around them. I, I would like to say we don't really see ourselves in the middle. We kind of see ourselves in a different space. So Great. Sort of Great. Triangulation, if you would. But our, our key perspective is, first of all, that animals' emotional states and their quality of life obviously matters because why else are people bring them into their lives as pets? Um, if, they, if people didn't feel emotional connections to their dogs, um, yeah, most of the people wouldn't have them. You know, some people would, but most wouldn't. Um, I think it's worth saying, too, that even people who train harshly, I think still, you know, for a large part, think that dogs matter. Oh, sure. It, it, you know, yeah. some view it in a different way. I mean, it's just like in the horse community. Um, you know, if you look at some old school cowboys, some of them just view the horse as a tool. But of course, some of the old school cowboys wrote poems to their horses and stuff, you know, <laughs> hmm. um, and were very emotionally attached to them and whatnot. But um, one of our primary views is that virtually every significant behavior problem that exists in dogs, but you could say largely animals in general, but certainly dogs, um, is primarily emotionally driven. Um, and that if we don't acknowledge that that's really the core of the problems, then however we choose to decide to uh, train, we're often dancing around those problems. And so that's really our beginning point is, you know, A, these animals are our friends. That's why we have them in our lives. So their quality of experience matters. And we're trying to improve that friendship. And that B, the core of their problems is emotional. And so that's why we focus primarily on the emotions. Man, did I tell you this was going to be a power-packed episode or what? Now, at this point, the conversation shifted to repetitions in dog training. I gave the example of a lot of times people will call me and say, my dog is scared of guys in hats. And I'll say, well, how many times did the dog see uh, a guy in a hat? How many times did he walk by? Repetitions are very important in dog training, although dogs can learn from a single event, and we get into that. But we talk about repetitions because so many dog trainers feel like they need to make the dog do something or the dog isn't trained. The dog has to sit when somebody comes to the door or, some, or go to its place or something like that. So we get into all that. And also, what's up with just good dogs that don't need training? So for me, when I look at problem behavior, I think of those dogs as my goal. I want to help the problem dog become like the dog that never needed training. Well, I, I think, too, that one of the biggest leaps that people have to make when they're learning our system training between the ears is, um, is that some trainers are so indoctrinated in feeling like it isn't training and it isn't a well-trained dog unless they're told what to do. <laughs> and yeah. I think that that leap to um, feeling comfortable that the dog has already learned from you through, you know, the feedback, what works in its life and what doesn't work, and that you can actually coexist without, you know, giving orders and giving instruction yeah. all the time 
is is a huge it's a huge mind flip for people some people really fight against it for a good amount of time and that's funny i, I want to get back to ian's point about reps in a moment but it's I funny because it reminds ivan's uh, because it reminds me um you know like the biggest problem we have with our own dogs is like if we try to take a holiday picture or something because they don't know to sit on command or whatever that's else that is know? absolutely like, that's the limitation of our little that's, uh, that's like where we run into real problems you know anything else is easy but back to the point of this idea of repetitions and all you know that first of all there's two sides of this repetition element one which you mentioned how many times has that guy in the hat passed by um but the other is the repetitions that we as trainers try to do I think one thing that's really important to understand is that um, dogs can have single event learning and they can see things as aversive without ever having experienced them before. Mm -hmm. um, you know, any of us in our own life could have some circumstance where, you know, let's just say you've never seen a bat and all of a sudden a bat's flying around your kitchen. Mm -hmm. That could freak the crap out of you. You don't necessarily have to have had prior mm -hmm. bad experience with a bat. That's it. That's your bad experience right there. Mm -hmm. and, and that kind of sets you off where you are. And a lot of people like that with a snake. You know, they don't have to have had prior bad experience with snakes. They see one and they flip out. Um, so that's one thing that I think is important, that not all responses are the result of, um, you know, long or involved histories with something. Some are, but a lot aren't. But... Um, also, when it comes to repetitions, in my mind, there are things where repetitions are very helpful, and there are things where repetition actually can be a problem. It can be not that helpful. So what you were talking about, when we will help a dog relax while it's exposed to something or experiencing something, um, that's um, a process we call perception modification, and we're trying to change on an emotional level, what is the dog's experience while it's exposed to that thing? And it's really exactly the opposite of what we typically visualize as starting the problem to begin with. You know, somebody say, well, my dog was great with other dogs until I went to the dog park and it got in a fight, blah, blah, blah. And now it's reactive to other dogs. We hear that a lot. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, what that means is that they had a given experience and during that experience had a really strong emotional, uh, negative emotional response in it uh, or experience in it. And that is what drove their future behavior. And what we're trying to do is just flip that around and do the opposite and say, hey, actually, you could experience this and you could feel well and you could feel comfortable and you could feel curious and you could feel safe and secure. And um, so that's very different from saying, um, as certainly the force-based trainers do, and a lot of the positive trainers, um, you know, if we get you to sit and if we get you to be quiet, whether it's by force or by reward, then the problem is solved because you're now doing an inca incompatible behavior. Our view is we wouldn't care what behavior you were doing if you felt well and you were comfortable and you didn't, you weren't compelled to aggression or you know, whatever, whatever things it is that we don't like. So we certainly do focus on some repetitions of some things. But another element of our training is what we would call conceptual training. So teaching the dogs ideas instead of just a rote response to something. And it was really interesting. We were at um, the Art and Science of Dog Training Conference down in Dallas 
last year? Was it Ken talking about the consent? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so just this this previous year, 2019, uh, Ken Ramirez, who's the vice president of training for um, Karen Pryor Academy and who was the head of training at the Shedd Aquarium in Chicago for a long time, maybe 20 years, uh, he was talking and he was talking about what he calls conceptual training and how he thinks of that as a higher level of training um, and how neat it is. But what he was talking about was that um, the animals have to learn a lot of rote behavior first as building blocks for us to then do conceptual training with. And it was funny because Stephanie turned to me during the conversation. She goes, well, that's really the exact opposite of what you do. I see you doing conceptual training in the first time you meet a dog. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah. And the point of that is it relates to the idea of repetition is that not everything takes a lot of repetition. If you change an emotional connection to something, if you change a thought about something, then um, the world can change. An example I like to use is uh, there's a story about uh, Lewis and Clark, you know, when they went on their big expedition for, what was that, the Louisiana Purchase? Don't ask yeah. me. Yeah. Um, you know, Thomas Jefferson had them go scope out the Louisiana Purchase that he had bought from France. And they went all the way to the Pacific Northwest. In any case, there's a story about um, they were with some Native Americans and it was, I guess, surprising to Lewis and Clark that those Native Americans didn't have good language about future or past things mm -hmm. and that they had no written language. And someone within the party, I don't know that it was Lewis and Clark, but set up a demonstration and they asked one of the Native Americans to tell them about something. They wrote it down showed it to another person from the Lewis and Clark expedition, so another, you know, European-American, um, and had that person say what the other person had told them, and, of course, read that in front of another Native American. And it was like a magic trick to those people. They couldn't, hmm. they couldn't believe it. They didn't have the concept that you could do something like that with language. And that, to me, really is the power of concepts, that you can open up a whole new thing to an animal. In fact, there's a, a dog, there's a really neat video out now, and we've got video of it on our um, our public Facebook page, which is what, Training Between the Ears? Mm -hmm. um, and it's this dog that uses language buttons. They're little buttons. Oh, I've you, seen that. Yeah, on the floor that you press, and the dog actually compiles ideas. So it yeah. says, uh, you know, whatever the dog's name is, me want to go out now. And I will say, no, not go out now. And the dog will say, why not go out now? <laughs> really? Yeah, it's pretty wild. And um, so, but part of the point here is, is that when you think of the animals on this level, you can think of them much more than just response mechanisms. And that largely tends to be how training from both sides tends to look at the dogs. Certainly on the uh, reward-based side, there's a lot more focus these days on counter-conditioning, which is getting at an emotional response, but in a very limited, again, response-based way, like, um, you know, when somebody shows up with a hat, how do you respond? What we really want to teach uh -huh. the dog is to broadly be an optimist. And if you just think about it, imagine if you were on one side of a door and a dog's on another side of the door, and 
you just start scratching at the door <clears throat> or you wiggle the handle or whatever. What is a dog on the other side going to expect? Well, if it's a dog that has problems with strangers and a lot of reactivity and stuff, uh, it's probably going to bark its head off and carry on and get quite uncomfortable because it's a pessimist. It's expecting something bad. Mm-hmm. Um, what if you took that same dog and as you made a little bit of noise outside of the room, maybe the, uh, the bottom of the door has a bit of a gap, and you made a little noise outside of the room and then you shot a piece of food under it. And you made a little more noise outside the room and you shot a piece of food under it. If the dog was you know, comfortable enough to be able to eat the food, um, that would start changing the dog's impression of what's outside the door. And again, if the dog was at a point where it could do this, the dog would start to have an optimistic image of what's outside the door. And imagine if we added to that, you know, playing a recording of the voice of someone the dog really likes. Well, now it's definitely going to have a strong image in its head that, hey, something good is outside this door. So those noises that a moment ago were scaring the heck out of me now are actually making me have positive anticipation. Like, hey, I hope they hurry up and open the door. And so that's just a very different way of thinking about what causes the problem behavior to begin with and how we could affect changing it. Hmm. And sometimes it requires repetitions and sometimes you can do something in one instance that really changes something for a dog. Well, I think um, one of the things that surprises the trainers who get into our system is that we're not going to sessions with clients and, and having them do 20 minutes of training here and there doing mm-hmm. repetitions. Mm-hmm. And that um, that's very different than a lot of other things. Most people are actually waiting. Most of our clients are waiting for that time period in the session when we're <laughs> going to say, you know, OK, so now you do 15 <laughs> minutes of this and and it just never happens. Um, well, some things happen that way, but not much. Yeah. But it is funny how we. Um, we often get clients that, you know, will be in the third session. And they go, well, so when are we really going to get into the training? And we'll say, so let's think about how your dog is acting today versus how it was three weeks ago when we met it. And we'll just go through a little checklist. So, you know, what was it like when we rang the doorbell? What was it like when we came in? You know, what's your dog doing right now? Uh, and they're like, oh, well, it's just laying down, relaxing. It's like, right, did we tell it to do that? Uh, no. Um, why is it doing it? And, you know, all of a sudden they're like, so this is the training? (laughs) Yeah, I've had, yeah, you know what? I've had that experience also. I want to ask you a couple of questions. So can we go back to free behavior for just a second? Yeah. For some reason, as far as free behavior goes, every single house I've ever, I mean, maybe literally two houses maybe didn't do this. Every, even today, I went for a dog evaluation. And as soon as I got there, like they're telling the dog to sit. Literally, literally every single person is like, sit, and they're trying to impress me. Yeah. And oh, can I ask you a question? (laughs) Meanwhile, the dog has bitten four people. (laughs) Do they, do the dogs actually sit when they ask them to? Oh, no, no. I mean, maybe like one time out of a hundred. (laughs) Uh-huh. So an important perspective that I developed about obedience, um, you know, my early involvement in dog training was competitive canine sports. So I got started in what was then called Schutzen, then became called IPO, and now they call it IGP. I don't know why they did that. But um, 
But uh, one of the perspectives I had is, you know, you would have people who would often had dogs that they had paid, you know, a couple thousand dollars for as a puppy um, or tens of thousands of dollars for as an adult. Uh, their whole purpose in having the dog was to compete in this sport that um, ostensibly a third of it was obedience, really a lot more than a third of it is obedience because there's lots of obedience in the bite work and there's a certain amount of obedience in the um, tracking. Um, they, you know, this would be their big hobby. These are people who typically are going to one, two, three seminars a year, maybe more, to learn more about their training. They're going to Learberg and watching every video that they can get from from Learberg. And, um, you know, this is this is their thing. This is what they're doing. And in spite of that, uh, I think most of the trials that I was in, uh, less than 50 percent of the dogs passed overall. Mm -hmm. And that means even like at a Schutzen three where the dog already had to have passed a one and a two, you know, you probably had a more like a 66 percent pass rate on that. Um, on the ones, I think in most trials, it was less than 50%. This is back, you know, 30 years ago or so. Um, but I used to think, you know, that you'd have dogs that, you know, they've been trained endlessly, sometimes for years, and they don't do a sit at the right time, or they don't let go of a bite when they're told to, or they don't lay down on an article when they come to it and whatnot. And I used to think, you know, if these people with these dogs and all of their unbelievable hours and learning into training can't always get their dogs to do the things they want them to do under stress, uh, you know, which the trial presents some stress, why do we think we're going to teach an average person with an average dog in six or 10 or 12 weeks to be able to do that reliably? And then that their kids are going to get the dog to do it and they're wife who didn't want the dog in the first place going to get to do it or you know or the husband whatever it might be and the drunk uncle is going to get the dog to do it and all hmm. that just made no sense to me whatsoever mm-hmm. and so if the dogs can't reliably do that stuff especially with the kind of time frames that professional trainers have to work with them why would we try to make that our solution to the dog you know biting guests or getting in scraps with other dogs or not being able to walk while on a leash or whatever. This doesn't make sense. If, if people who put a hundred times the resources into it aren't reliably successful, why do we, why do we come to that as our brilliant plan for how to help people with behavior problems? That's a good point. And because, you know, I, I was thinking about that myself recently because a lot of people consider that the standard and, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what that's about. Yeah. And so it's interesting, you know, there's a lot of different ways that this comes up. But there are a lot of parallels between the two different communities. And I guess I should mention, you know, the reason I use such a harsh term as saying it's a civil war. Um, That's accurate. That's accurate. It is the committed purpose of the people on one side to run the others out of business. Um, Mm -hmm. And and they're coming from an ethical perspective. I'm not, you know, uh, bashing on all that, but... um, it, it definitely is that. And certainly if you listen to people on the force-based side talk about uh, people on the reward-based side, one of the reasons they can't learn a lot of the good things that the reward-based side has to teach is because of the way they view those people as, you know, the other. Um, and so it is a real problem uh, in the world. But that's why I mention it that way. But 
interesting. There's a lot of parallels between both sides. Um, I see just as many reward-based trainers trying to get a dog to sit when it greets somebody as I do force-based trainers. And they don't really even acknowledge that they're both using the same principle, which is trying to create an incompatible behavior. It's just a question, do you reward the dog for it or do you force the dog to do it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they both come back to the same problem. I mean, you can look at any number of studies you want that say dogs learn better by reward-based training than force-based training and whatnot. But that doesn't mean they learn magically, that you can go spend six or 10 or 12 weeks with somebody teaching the dog to do some obedience and because it's taught through rewards that now, you know, when some really challenging circumstance comes up, a stranger comes through the door or somebody else walks up with a noisy dog, that magically your dog's going to sit and it's going to be nice <laughs> and quiet. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of funny how they they tend to argue at each other, um, you know, as if they're from different planets, when fundamentally there's an awful lot of things they look at quite similarly. Likewise. <laughs> Sorry, because I'll, I'll forget if I don't say it. And at some point I want to, like, jump off, if it's okay with you guys, I want to yeah. jump off topic, off dogs completely, and then back to dogs. And also ask Stephanie how she got involved with dogs. And so, but I, I do want to say one quick thing because you, you said so many awesome things and I'll, I'll forget them. So I know terms are really not that important, but me personally for, for yes, the they t- are. Okay. You know what? Thank you. They are. I, I don't know They're why I even important. said that. Okay. So, so not only are they hang, important. Hang on just a second. Let me just, Stephanie, what's my least hated saying? <laughs> semantics. That's semantics. That's just semantics. <laughs> you look up in the dictionary, the definition of semantics and it's the meaning of language. <laughs> you know, you're right. And I, I actually, a friend of mine said the same thing to me recently. So words do matter. And yeah. here's my, here are my personal words for the two sides of the Civil War. Because I, I like to just make it as transparent as possible. I consider it three quadrant versus four quadrant people. That's, because then people will say like, whoa, what, you know, what does that mean? Yeah, and, yeah that's an interesting way of thinking of it. Yeah, Although so many would say they're two quadrant people, not three quadrant people. I don't, yeah, but you know what? I've been recently, I've been talking to tons of fear free trainers, all, yeah, and um, some of the biggest, and they consider themselves three quadrant. And you know, like my, my big question for we, them, we should just uh state for anybody who's not following that. that what we'd be talking about is that they're ruling out positive punishment but ruling in. Uh, negative reinforcement. And that's actually kind of a new thing. I, I have some thoughts about that, that becoming sort of re-accepted in the, uh, in the positive world. But just so for people who don't know, the three quadrants that they would be identifying themselves by is positive reinforcement, positive uh, negative reinforcement, and um, positive, what did I say? <laughs> Positive. They do both parts of po- and positive negative punishment. Negative punishment. Negative punishment. <laughs> so they would align themselves with positive and negative reinforcement and negative punishment, which uh, actually is a big problem because a lot of them will not use the word punishment. But anyway, back to your thought. That's true. So and so okay. So I've been talking to and I really didn't plan on because there's so many things I'm curious about you guys. I didn't plan on even going off on this tangent, but like. <clears throat> It just so happens I've been talking to some of the biggest names, not on the podcast, off mm-hmm. the air. Some of the biggest names in the fear-free world and the ones that are actively getting e-collars, working on getting e-collars banned and things like that. 
And <clears throat> there's two things that I say to them that they never have an answer for. I've either been, they either hang up on, they either agree with me or they hang up the phone on me or they curse me out. And um, so basically. Which is very positive. So positive. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, anyway. But most of them agree with me. They're just like, yeah, well, you're like the 1% that, you know, thinks that way. But it's not even true. So, like, anyway, what I say to them is two things. Like, like they – the scientific – there's a particular scientific study that they're using to get e-collars banned. I'm not for or against e-collars. I don't even want to – I've used them. I've not used them. I don't – you know, it's not really relevant to my point. But, like – um, so they're using this study to ban e-collars and I, and, but the point is they, the, the study is flawed science and I'm not a scientist. You don't have to be. It's just, it's premise is flawed that they're taking dogs and they're training them reward based versus punitively. And the thing is like, nobody's doing that. Like I understand people, there are compulsion trainers that do do that. But like, but almost every single people that call themselves balance trainers or four quadrant trainers, those people, from what I've seen, are all doing reward based at the beginning, and then they're doing the layering and all these different things, and then they're proofing with the e collar, whatever they're proofing with. But yeah. I mean, but they're they're taking a study where they're basically saying, no, the other side doesn't do reward based training. And that's why e-collars should be banned. So it's, I don't know, it's just kind of crazy. Well, we we could uh, we should do another podcast another time. We could go on all day about, you know, some of the problems with the science that's being used and how it's being done. But, you know, if you just want to take the simplest thing is, if you just look at the number of dogs involved, um, you could never make any policy on humans based on a study that dealt, dealt with 20 dog, you know, 20 people or 40 people or, mm -hmm. you know, whatever it might be. Um, I, I think you're probably talking about the most recent study by uh, Daniel Mills' group in England. I, I think so. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's a really good hearted attempt to, to move the conversation forward. But, um, you know, there's all kinds of huge problems. One is that um, uh, you're dealing with task-based behavior again. And Frankly, what an e-collar is best for is teaching a dog not to do something. For sure, you can use them to teach dogs to do things. And as you said, most people who are doing that are involving rewards of some kind or another. And the, um, the stimulus from the collar becomes a conditioned reinforcer or a conditioned punisher, depending on how they're using it, you know. Um, but, um, but, you know, what we never hear about is, which is 99% of what clients call us for, how do I teach the dog not to do something? And there's just no question <laughs> on earth. If you want to teach the dog not to get on your kitchen table, that um, using some form of pun positive punishment is going to work more effectively than using rewards. But this brings us to the big thing. Then we act as if we're in a world where you're doing one or the other. The All of the problems you would come into in using the punishment are potentially solved by how you also use the rewards. Uh, you know, if all you do is, you know, your dog jumps up on the table and you, you know, toss a hand grenade at him and it blows up, well, you got a dead dog. That's not good training. Um, if he jumps up on the table and you beat him with a broom and when he gets off, you point at him and go, there, you little bastard, don't do that again. That's not going to be good training. 
But, you know, if he got stemmed with an e-collar on a fairly low level um, and get off the table and we get off, he got rewarded. And if that repeated a handful of times and the dog didn't have a competing example where he got up on the table and it didn't happen, uh, most dogs would really quickly decide, well, I'm not going to get on the table anymore. But they'd be perfectly happy with the kitchen, with the people in the kitchen, with all the other things they could do there if all those other things led to rewards. So you're right, a big part of the problem of not just the um, the studies, but the conversations is they act as if there's this, you know, big wall down the middle and you must be on one side of it or the other. Yeah. And, you know, the reality is, <laughs> first of all, aversives happen in nature, punishment happens in nature, fear happens in nature, and animals learn from it. Now, I'm not using those to justify all the bad training in the world. A lot of people do. Mm-hmm. But you just have to deal with that beginning reality <laughs> that all those things exist in nature and animals are emotionally tremendously well-balanced in nature. Um, so uh, when we talk about these things as distinct separate things, they don't exist distinctly in nature. So why do we talk about them as if they should exist distinctly in our training? So, and, and, and I'd like to get Stephanie's opinion on this also. There's this, uh, there's this guy, I don't know if you've ever seen this guy's YouTube, Beckman. He works with like dolphins and stuff like that. Not familiar. No. no. But, um, but he, he has a video where he kind of lets this dog onto his property and it's kind of, you know, like just kind of like a crazy dog, just, just pushy and, you know, just what most people would just call reactive or something like that. And uh, he has a Doberman that's just kind of used to these, you know, bouncy dogs coming in and putting them in his place when when he has to. And um, I play that video. I've played that video for some of these all positive trainers. And I'm like, you know, if it's so wrong, like, do you think you should go tell that other dog that it's wrong? Like, do you think that dog is wrong for doing that? And like, like, even though the I mean the the dog that gets kind of bounced back is resilient and just kind of learns boundary you know just kind of sniffs a little bit and he's a little more cautious so all of that is true when it works out well when it doesn't work out well then we have dog fights and then we have dogs in households that don't get along well and all but i do think it's an example that when things work out well and then of course you have to think about what makes them work out well that this is a normal part of dog's existence. And, you know, just as an example, um, dog parks have become a really big thing in the United States. And that has been almost exclusively driven by people on the reward side of, mm-hmm. of the equation, um, which is, you know, potentially a great thing. Um, but you go to any dog park and you see dogs exposed to lots of fear, lots of aversives, not everything. I mean, there's lots of good stuff that goes on. Um, but if if those people were so purely anti-aversive and thought that dogs could not handle any aversives, then um, then they would be very anti-dog park. And of course, some are. Sue, Sue Sternberg is an example. She has become very anti-dog park for lots of good reasons. But uh, anyway, but um, I don't want to spend all our time talking as if I am a huge advocate for everything aversive in training um, because I'm not. Um, against a lot of it, but I think that we have to be open to the idea that, first of all, animals, even in our life, not just in nature, experience stress and experience aversive events, 
And so we shouldn't completely rule them out from potentially being productive. And actually a big part of our training is trying to get to where the dog is not experiencing everything as aversive. Um, you know, if you think of a really shy, nervous, fearful dog, it views most events in its life as aversive and fear-inducing. And we're trying to remove that from the animal's life. But we're trying to do that by changing the dog's emotional connection to those things, not by trying to change the whole world around the dog and say, well, if we put up heavy curtains, the dog just won't see what's out front and won't be afraid of it and won't be barking and carrying on. We want the dog to actually be healed and changed. And in fact, our motto is, is that we teach dogs to heal with an A, H-E-A-L. Oh, I love it. I love it. So, but I do think that, and I'd love to have more conversation about this another time. I think there's lots of problems with just the conversations we have, with what we talk about, with certainly on the science side of it, the science that's done and how it's interpreted and whatnot. And I have to say, you know, fundamentally, most of it is weak, to say the least. And even in the uh, Daniel Mills study that just came out, uh, came out this past year, um, the finding that gets put around all the time is that the study showed that the um, reward-based group did better than the force-based group, which is true. But if you read the fine print on it, what it actually says is there was a very small difference between the two groups. It doesn't say one one group became mentally insane and started attacking <laughs> their handlers, and the other group was amazing. And, when I, and, and it was two days of training. <laughs> oh, two days of training. Well, I mean, if they're um, going to... Yeah, my... The thing they did really good in it is they did, um, they did select people to do the electronic collar training that, were, that claimed to be electronic collar trainers. But even that, you know, it's not all one thing. Um, but anyway, right. we, we can get into more of that on another day, but that stuff is, is challenging and frustrating. Um, we primarily look at our training as something where our first choice with almost everything is how can we use rewards or relaxation to reframe the world for the dog. Where we think of using aversives and using positive punishment is actually using them in service of rewards. A lot of times, if you use a little bit of aversive to affect some small part of a behavior, it might be an important part, but some small part of the behavior, all of a sudden you can reward the dog for a lot of things that you could not have rewarded him for if you had not been willing to do that aversive. And the most common example that we come up with that is what we call boundary training, where we simply teach a dog that uh, we usually do this using um, a leash and food initially and then... Uh, food in a squirt bottle, but we'll teach the dog that there's a boundary that you can't cross, and that might be the threshold between two rooms. And we may have a dog that is uh, initially being quite aggressive towards another dog or maybe towards us, and we'll create that boundary. Um, we teach it separately, but then we'll use it um, in the training, and it'll be backed up by an aversive. But basically, we end up teaching the dog is, you can be as pissed off and aggressive as you want on your side of the boundary. Mm -hmm. But you cannot cross this boundary. It's not simply that there's a barrier there that you can't get through, but you have to restrain yourself and choose not to go across that. And what's interesting is when we do that same thing with a barrier, and now we try to use rewards on the other side of the barrier for the dog, 
oftentimes they can't take them because they're so caught up in their reactive or aggressive behavior. When instead of having a ba uh, barrier, we have a boundary, and now the dog has to choose not to cross that, but it's still completely free to act up as much as it mm -hmm. wants on its own side. It's stunning how often now the dogs can take the food on that side. And so this is what I refer to as using aversives or punishment in service of rewards. And so we're always putting this, you know, uh, false narrative up of do you use rewards to help the dog or do you use aversives? Use aversives for what they do best. Teach the dog not to do the simplest element of the behavior. You can't cross over here. And it's amazing how that helps the other dog become more secure, the dog that, you know, is, is respecting the boundary and opens them up to taking rewards. And, uh, and then, of course, the other thing is we're not doing counter conditioning. So we're not just trying to say you get food because there's another dog here. And so that makes a big difference. Ivan hmm. had a thought about that. He did. I heard a ding. Oh, you know what? I had too many thoughts. Um, <laughs> um, you know what? I'll actually tell me how much time we have and then I'll prioritize my questions. Well, we can take whatever time you want. Okay. I mean, that it's New Year's New Year's Eve, and we're not going out because of COVID okay. and all. Um, and you know, if you want to split this into a part one and two, or a part one through twelve, you know, whatever, that's fine. <laughs> he could yeah. do twelve. He really could. I'm, I might just do that. Be I mean, part one and two, because um, I I'm just gonna throw out the topics. We won't talk about them. I'll just let you know where I'm headed. Okay. Okay. I do want to talk about um. I forgot what you called it on your YouTube channel, but like a terminal bridge for things that you don't like. Oh, um, like an, a, non, a, a negative a, bridge or a CVP. No, or a CVP conditioned mm -hmm. verbal punisher. Mm. No, like you were giving an example of like a dog that's about to potty indoors and then, oh, 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 punishment by reward. Okay. Okay. Let me just, yeah. PBR, punishment by reward. Okay, so that was, I don't want to jump into it yet, but yeah, that was one of the things, punishment by reward. I want to get to that because that makes a lot of dog trainers cringe. Oh, yeah, that that is our most watched video, and we get a ton of crap about it. Um, you know what, let's amongst... just jump right into it. Let's just jump, let's just jump into <laughs> punishment by reward because it really, it makes a lot of dog trainers cringe, and one of the things I pride myself on is if something does, I don't know if you know the word schema, but like if something does yeah. make me, oh, perfect. If something does make me cringe, I'm like, I'm mad at myself for even, nothing as a trainer should make you cringe. It's just like, whatever benefits the dogs, just go there. Don't let your filter get in the way. So yeah. um, punishment by reward, please talk about it. So um, first of all, um, in general with the things that we teach, we get a lot of crap from people saying we're just renaming things. Or that we don't understand Or that things. we don't understand some very bad. I get told all the time I don't actually understand what counter conditioning and desensitization are because mm -hmm. I say they don't work well. Um, but, I, th uh, I think the results are artificial and that's why they appear to look well. Well, I think the term limited would make more sense than artificial. I mean, they're real. Um, they're just real within a very limited schema. <laughs> they're <right. laughs> they're, um, so they're... Um, but um, we get told that we're not actually punishing behavior, that we're just redirecting it, we're interrupting it, et cetera, et cetera. So that, here's that the first punishment thing. can only exist with an actual with an aversive. aversive, yeah. So here's the first thing to understand, and then I'll explain what punishment by reward is and why it works. 100% of people 
on the reward side of training would absolutely agree that you could use an aversive with a dog to try and punish a behavior. And by doing that, you could potentially actually end up reinforcing the very behavior you were trying to get rid of. And the classic argument for that is, is, you know, if you have a dog that's already aggressive towards other people, and let's say you put a pinch collar on them and you try to punish the dog out of that aggressive behavior with the pinch collar, mm -hmm. everybody on the reward-based side would say, and they'd be right, that you could end up making the dog's aggressive behavior worse yeah. by using what the dog does perceive as an aversive stimulus, which is, you know, heavy correction with the uh, pinch collar. So what they're saying is you can not only reinforce a behavior by using a reward, but you could use, or what we would call an appetite of stimulus, something the dog wants, but you could reinforce a behavior by using something that the animal dislikes, doesn't actually want. But then when we flip that around and we say, well, the definition of punishment only is that it's a response to a behavior that leads to less of the behavior in the future. Mm -hmm. the, the fundamental idea doesn't depend on what the input was. In other words, it doesn't require that it's an aversive, although a lot of books now uh, have that as their definition, but that's a, a fairly recent thing. So when I say, well, of course you could use positive punishment on something, people say, well, I don't use aversives with dogs, or I don't, I don't use fear-based training, or you know, whatever it might be. And I say, well, what if you used a reward to punish the behavior? And they will quickly say, that's impossible. How could it be impossible to use a reward to punish a behavior if you can use an aversive to reinforce a behavior? <laughs> Mm -hmm. right? They're just flip sides of the same coin. That's hard so, for, yeah, okay. Yeah. So there can basically be two reasons why punishment by reward can work. But fundamentally what punishment by reward is, is using the exact same principle of timing, marking, and a consequence or a reward um, to a behavior that you don't like that you would use to a behavior that you do like. Mm -hmm. So... If I have a person and they like the dog sitting, and when the dog sits, they say yes and give it food, of course their expectation is that they're gonna reinforce that behavior, they're gonna get more sitting. Um, but when I explain to people that actually, you could use that exact same process sometimes under some circumstances where the behavior does an animal that, the animal does a behavior that you don't like and you could end up getting less of the behavior. Well, that just fits all the definition. You're making a response to the behavior and you get less of the behavior in the future. So how could that work? Well, just imagine a dog that's very aggressive at a fence and the dog comes running up to the fence barking at you like it's gonna kill you and you say yes and you give it food. Um, is the dog gonna become more aggressive or less aggressive with repetition? And the reality is, almost universally, the dog will become less aggressive. And why, and why is that? Because you're affecting their emotional state, not their behavior. So this, the, the key here is, is that um, punishment by reward, first of all, uses exactly the same structure as responding to a behavior that you like. So it's not something different. 
it's exactly the same. So the same timing in using the terminal bridge or whatever marker we're using, you know, yes or clicker, whatever, and we're providing a reward. And if we do that, in some circumstances, we will get less of the behavior, not more, which is the definition of having punished a behavior. And fundamentally, I won't get into it too deep because it's not really the purpose of our talk today, but it works for one of two reasons. One is, is that it mutes the emotion that's driving the undesirable behavior and it reprograms it to a different emotion that's not compatible with that behavior. Or the other, and this is actually what we talk about in the video um, that you mentioned on our YouTube channel, which is where the dog is marking, um, is it creates a hesitation in the behavior because of an expectation. So if every time the dog goes and lifts his leg on the couch, we click and throw food, as soon as he does it, just like we would with a sit, not after he did it and walked away from it, but as soon as he does it, we click and reward, pretty quickly the dog cannot think of lifting its leg and peeing on the couch without thinking of us clicking and rewarding. And what will end up happening at some point is the dog will go over to pee on the couch. One of two things is going to happen. One could be that the dog pees on the couch and when it doesn't immediately hear us click, it turns to look at us like, hey, why didn't that happen? Which starts to interfere with the behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, or the other thing that will very often happen is the dog will go over to do it. Mm. And before it does it, turn and look because of its expectation that we're going to reward it. Well, now we have a new behavior that didn't exist before. What used to happen is if the dog thought about peeing on the couch, just went over and did it. Now, when it thinks of going over and peeing on the couch, it starts that action and then has the thought of us clicking and rewarding and turns to look at us like, hey, you're going to do that. Now we can click and reward that, which is a new behavior that didn't exist before. And now it's just a function of timing. How much can we start separating those two things? And for anybody who considers themselves really good as a clicker trainer, I shouldn't even have to explain the rest of that. It should be pretty bloody easy. Um, <laughs> and of course, the other thing that's, that's important in this, which I've also gotten crap about, is that marking in general um, is an emotional behavior and it's a uh, defensive behavior. I mean, why, did, why do animals mark territory? Basically either to find mates or to exclude competition. And um, so you're either you know trying to get laid or you're trying to keep the enemy away. Um, and um, we certainly see more marking as a general thing in more anxious dogs. It's not exclusive and not all dogs who mark are terribly anxious and not all anxious dogs mark, but there is a connection between those two things. And so if we happen to have a dog that a component of its marking is some level of anxiety or concern about territory or whatever, the dog probably doesn't know exactly what its concern is, But if that's an element of it and we start introducing a reward right at the moment that the animal is experiencing that anxiety and we start to reprogram that anxiety from an anxious behavior to a calmer behavior or an appetite behavior. Hmm. So, and let me just tell you, it is a ton of fun to work with. (laughs) 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 And we've taught a few hundred people to do it. Uh, so, um, I do have a couple more questions for you. One of them is totally off topic. We won't get to it yet, but I'm going to ask 
You guys, if either one of you has ever seen a UFO. <laughs> okay. Um, actually, I, I, I would like to ask that right now. Have either one of you seen a UFO in your life? Steffi? I'm just trying to figure out how to answer that question because there are a lot of potential answers to that question. But I'm going to go with no. Hmm. I have the perfect answer to it. Everybody's seen a UFO. All it means is it's unidentified. Unidentified to who? If you don't know what it is, it's an unidentified flying object. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, we've all so, seen so UFOs. So the bigger question is, do you believe you've seen something in the sky that you didn't know what it was, and because you didn't know what it was, you believe that it came from an extraterrestrial source? Mm -hmm. Do yeah. you believe that it came from an extraterrestrial source? Oh, if it was uh, a meteorite or something, but I didn't know that's what it was. But mm -hmm. do I believe in, in things flying around in our earthly space that come from other planets? No. Right. So I will say that I've definitely <laughs> seen things that are, to me, unidentified in, right. in the sky. And I have not attributed them necessarily to extraterrestrials, but uh, I've definitely looked up in the sky and thought, what the heck is that? What the that? hell is that? Yeah. So it's an unidentified mm -hmm. object. Yeah. Potentially fun. So I'll tell you a quick funny story, though. Uh, when I was a kid, maybe like seven or eight or nine, something like that, my mother, my sister, and I were in the car. It was nighttime, and I think it was in the summer. And we saw something in the sky. My mom pointed it out and had a lot of lights. Um, our impression was, or my mother's impression, was that it was not flying like a plane. And we spent some time, might have been 5, 10, 15 minutes or something, sort of driving around trying to, you know, keep this thing in sight. And my mother was like, that's a UFO, that's a UFO. And uh, as a kid, uh, in part because I'm uh, fairly dyslexic, uh, my favorite reading material was our encyclopedia at home, or a set of encyclopedias. And um, of course, there was, there was no internet at the time, there was no Google or anything. And, um, and you and had I, 20 volumes in your house? Yeah, mm -hmm. and I loved the, uh, I guess it's more than that. And um, uh, I loved reference books of all kinds, so I start going and looking up, you know, like about UFOs and all. Mm -hmm. And it's really funny because I remember at that age um, coming to the very clear opinion that while I didn't know for sure what it was, which also meant I didn't know for sure what it wasn't, I had zero belief that it was actually some extraterrestrial thing that we saw flying around. So <laughs> that was my take on it even way back. You know, then. you know, I know one proof that this, this kind of, I'm hesitant to say this because it sounds kind of stupid, but it's also true. You know, the fact that we go to other planets is proof. I mean, we're aliens to those planets. So at least, you know, we're life on another planet. So, I mean, it doesn't seem... So we're kind of like aliens. We're kind of proof that there's aliens in a way, or at least. Well, I think that's a great way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. I think the next thing to think about, though, is, um, you know, our growing ability to investigate the world around us and how little direct evidence we've seen of other life forms, you know, that could get in spaceships and whatnot and all. So my point is not at all that they couldn't exist or they don't exist. If you think of the math of it, they would have to exist. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, if you think of the math of it, the likelihood of the two of us running into each other is awfully bloody low. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh, so I'm not closed-minded in the sense that there couldn't be those things. 
I just think if if they were happening on the level that they're reported at, you know, think about to your point, like when we send lunar landers or or you know Mars landers, sometimes they crash. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, and and we leave those things there. So I I think there'd be more evidence, but I, I'm not of the mindset that those things couldn't exist, um, because to me that this relates very closely to one of my favorite thoughts about science, um, particularly as it relates to biology. Um, I always get very irritated whenever scientists tell us what can't exist, because we absolutely don't know what can't exist. We mm -hmm. only know what we know. And one of my favorite examples was um, we were always told that all life forms had to fit certain criteria. And one of those was that somehow or another they had to get their food source from the sun. And so whether they were plants or things that consume plants or things that consume things that consume plants, one way or another that had to happen. And um, then a number of years ago, uh, you know, there was some digging being done under San Francisco Bay. I don't remember the purpose for it, but when I say digging, it was deep under San Francisco Bay. And uh, they found bacteria that do what's called chemiosynthesis. Um, they produce their food out of the chemicals that exist around them. And those chemicals don't have to have previously come from plants or whatever else. And that was something that we were told, well, the reason there can't be life on, you know, Mars or whatever mm -hmm. is because it doesn't fit this, this pattern. It's <laughs> like, well, you didn't predict that life possibility either. And you know, think about the things that the thermal vents in the ocean with the high pressures and temperatures and blah, blah, blah. And likewise, we've been told all along about the limits of animals' uh, mental abilities. And I've said since I was fairly young just because we don't know how to ask a question doesn't mean what the answer is. So in other words, just because we don't know how to investigate another animal's intelligence doesn't mean that they're in yeah, yeah. our ability to investigate it. Yeah, that's, yeah. I, I, you know, I used to say to people something like, you know, people would just cut trees down and they're like, they don't feel pain. I, I, I was saying maybe we just don't hear their screams. Well, how do you define pain? What does that mean and all? Um, if you think of um, it was a plant called the sensitive plant that has these um, uh, compound leaves. And if you touch down the middle of the top of the vein on the leaf, it closes up. Um, I don't know. Is that a pain response? It's certainly a sensation response. So, but, you know, a lot of these things, like to me, um, you know, when we say, like, what is the limit of a dolphin's intelligence? How the hell do we know? Um, we can't do the things that they can do. And, you know, who was the bigger genius, Einstein or Beethoven? I don't know. Uh, well, <laughs> I'm not going to compare those two. <laughs> if you guys get a chance, maybe you've already seen it. There's a video on YouTube called What Plants Talk About. And uh -huh. uh, one of the things that to me is like most amazing in that video is there's a plant that sends out a signal to an insect that eats the insect that's eating its leaves. <laughs> that's great. So calls for help. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's excellent. Um, yeah, you know, the, the complexity of life is so vast that for us to talk about the limits of 
you know, what any of these things do or know is so absurd because, you know, just just think about go back 200 years and think about well, anything like Darwin, you know, or um, uh, what's his name? who did the early drawings for helicopters, uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Um, these people could not know many, many of the things that we know today. Right. Um, does that mean those things weren't true or they don't exist? I mean, they didn't know about, you know, what drives genetics, DNA, but they knew that if you put two good sheep together, you get better sheep than if you put two bad sheep together. You know? um, so, you know, I think about we can't even imagine what, what might be knowable 100 years from now, especially when you think about what's I mean, I, I often marvel, like, how did I know anything before Google? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I sometimes wonder what if we're the ones with the limitations and these other species are not. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, can you do echolocation the way a dolphin can? And actually, there's, there's some really interesting video. There's a guy who blind who teaches echolocation to people and he can ride a bicycle around in an area, uh, clicking his tongue and using echolocation to avoid the things around it. Uh, so that's kind of interesting. Uh, but anyway, I think the point of all this stuff is anytime you know something that expands what you know, uh, you know, by the power of one and expands what you don't know by the power of 10 or 100 or 1,000. Uh, so. All right, I'm going to ask you guys a wild question. Um, that wasn't wild enough? Yeah, no, not wild enough. This is... <laughs> This is a dog question. I was going to ask you actually more off-topic things, like are you guys good cooks and things like that, but I'm going to actually skip that. I, I got to get back to dog stuff. Um, so dog people sometimes uh, can do things that, in my experience, like um, you have to give me a minute to build this up. I'm not, I've never actually sure. asked somebody this question before. Um People have feel. It's been said that people have feelings, and dogs are their feelings. And I've I've had experiences with dogs where there's like a synchronicity of feelings. I, I there's in, in like a sense of entrainment with us. And um, I was just wondering, have you ever? You know how dogs will do like happy growls to each other, and it creates yeah. You know, a certain di- different types of happy growls make like yep. different vibrations and stuff like that. Um, do you have any experience replicating that with dogs in your personal life? Well, I think everybody uh, that has a lot of experience with dogs does to one level or another. I think one of the cores of, of what you're talking about, though, and why we don't, you know, see or feel this more is not about the dogs, it's about the people. I think this is a good example we were talking about where we're the more limited one. Mm-hmm. If it wasn't possible to have that emotional entrainment and sort of the behavior that can flow from it, how would a pack of wolves go hunt? <laughs> mm-hmm. They don't have, you know, the kind of direct language that we do. You know, I mean, when they're, when they're barking, uh, you know, they're not saying go left, go right. You know, that's... It's been relatively well evaluated um, on some level. So, but you know, you look at you look at uh, wolves, look at lions, and whatnot. 
you know, there is very often a level of teamwork that goes on where they're, they're not even making sounds to each other. Never mind, mm-hmm. you know, what are the limitations of those sounds. But yet there's some kind of emotional and intellectual connection where they're able to work together. And I think this is really the ideal of what we see in like a guide dog for the blind um, or a lot of service dog work where it's not about, you know, what cues can we teach the dog? What things can we tell the dog? But how connected can we get? How can we understand um, a similar perspective and a similar purpose? And, um, you know, you see that, for instance, with um, uh, dogs stopping at a curb, which is a pretty easy thing to teach a dog that, hey, you got to stop at the curb. But then it becomes conceptual training when the dog learns that, no, I actually have to look out for the well-being of this person. I have a sense of what they are not able to know or not able to do to protect themselves and that for whatever motivations, that's my role in the world and that I need to do that. And in fact, there's a great video I saw the other day um, of something like this with a cat. There's um, a a baby that looks like less than a year old to me um, crawling towards the top of a set of stairs so the baby could fall down the set of stairs. And behind it is a cat. The cat's maybe five or six feet away. And it seems to just be sitting there watching. And all of a sudden, the kid gets really close to the edge of the stairs. And the cat runs like a question mark around the kid, gets between the kid and the stairs, mm. and you know makes a big display that the kid backs up some from. And... You know, it's interesting to hear, you know, one group of people will look at that and try to explain what was not possible in the animal's understanding Mm -hmm. and whatnot, because that's what they want to believe. Some people will imbue the animal with a whole level of understanding that's not necessary for it to do what it did. And then others of us will look at it and just go, wow, that was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I don't claim to know everything about what went on there, but I can see that, you know, the animal had a perspective of what was going on and it acted for the benefit of the other animal. Um, so, yeah, there's all kinds of things that go on with that. There's, you know, there's stuff, um, you know, where like whales or other marine mammals will come up to divers. And uh, one of these that I saw recently was a sperm whale. There's no sperm whale on Earth that has a history of swimming with humans. And it comes up to this diver and just hangs around it and opens up its mouth and it's got a hook or something stuck in its mouth and the diver ends up unhooking it. There's a lot of examples of this with different marine mammals. But, you know, if it was a sea lion or something, you know, out in, uh, um, you know, San Francisco Bay or something, you might say, well, maybe it's had a lot of experience with humans and blah, blah, blah. How the hell does this happen with a sperm whale? Hmm. You think can dive 6,000 feet down into the ocean there's there's no corollary to like um humpback whales that you know some of them have swam with people and that kind of thing and all so yeah i think there's lots of that and i think that uh you know for me when i was doing the highest level competitive training that i was doing um which was uh, you know largely psa where there's a lot of different challenges that come at the dog that to me was really the core it wasn't you know what what are the set of cues I can use with this animal? Those are important, but how can I create a shared set of understanding of what matters, what doesn't matter, and how we're trying to work together? 
Because, I mean, the reason I, I even ask this question is because I've had, you know, communication with certain dogs where I make like a grunt and it means like, let's go. And then yeah. I, I've even used like a happy type of a growl for like an inter for like a short intermediate bridge for like a down, for example, or something like that, where I'm kind of like doing a happy growl that I'm pleased that you're continuing to do that behavior. And what's your takeaway from that versus having just said a word to do that? Um, there's something to be said for both. You could probably do it longer with words. Um, but uh, I don't know. The, um, I don't, I never, I, it's not something I ever like talk about. I, you're the first person I ever told that to. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just something I've done with some dogs. But I don't usually, I wouldn't usually use it for an intermediate bridge. I just use that example. But uh, I usually just do it more kind of like during playtime or something like that. Or I might just like s smell, like sniff them. And mm -hmm. do like a happy growl and walk away or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess to me there's, there's two different issues. One is what difference does it make what the signal is? You know, we get really hung up on signals being sit, down, whatever. Um, but we can use signals that communicate much more broadly than just those sort of blockish behaviors. So, you know, in that case, you're developing a signal that, communicates an emotional connection uh, or an emotional response in most of it. Um, and that's largely why intermediate bridges work. Um, but, um, but I think that's different from what you were talking about before. I think it's kind of an in-between towards what you were talking about before, where the two animals get a shared sensibility. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that is different, yeah. Where the cues are not the thing, yeah. So we were actually talking about this, I think, last week or so. Um, when I was younger, I would sit next to my dog and I would blink a lot mm. or blink slowly. And you could see the dog also starting to blink slowly or getting tired or getting calmer. And uh, so I, I think that kind of symbiotic relationship could be can be interesting. And and. I don't know how much this is connected to your question, but in our house, we are constantly naming and rewarding, yawning, relaxation, anything like that. And, and of course, you know, we, we, we get tons of it, but, um, because we, because we do exactly that, but, um, but there is that connection too, where then the dog communicates that relaxation to us and, um, there is that. And our dogs even use relaxation to try and get our attention when we're busy with other things. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so um, I don't know how related the, those are to your... That's to like, that's actually, getting. that's super related. Actually, I'd like to ask, Stephanie, I'd like to ask you this question. Maybe, you know, we could, this could be the final question or two. I, I have a question about naming, yawning, and eye blinks and things like that now. The question that I'm building up to is I have a lot of, ex I'm going to jump all over the place, but I have experience with diabetic alert dogs. And as you probably know, there's trained alerts versus natural alerts. And, the, you know, trained alert is like the dog's giving the paw or something like that. And natural yeah. alerts could be like a lot of different things. And uh, well, it might be just nudging or something. Right. It might. Right. Right. Well, yeah. Nudging is usually trained alert, although some dogs naturally do that also. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, so, but natural alerts, a lot of times the dog is, people don't pick up on them because it can look at a lot of different ways. A lot of times the dog yawns a lot, could yawn mm-hmm. like 12 times in a row and people don't right. notice. Right. And um, the dog might blink a lot. There could be a, a lot of different things. With diabetic alert dogs, the most specific we usually get is good high or good low. Um, but a lot of people just say good alert, and they don't even differentiate between the highs and the lows. As far as just regular dogs that I'm working with, I will when they offer a calming signal, I'll usually say good calm or, or put some word to it, whether it's a paw lift or a yawn or something else. My goal is for the dog to feel listened to and acknowledged. But you guys get much more specific than that. What can you tell me about that? Well, I think that you could do the things that you that you just talked about. I do think that naming things really takes it to the next level. I think na- I think I think it really speaks to whether a dog has the ability to learn and make connections beyond heels sitting down. And mm-hmm. I think a dog like Chaser um, that. Uh, that um, border collie who knew a thousand toys by name, <laughs> yeah, a thousand <laughs> toys by name, and even could recognize the one new toy that didn't yet have that a name. That was a really important part of that work yeah. that he could assume that the new name went with the new, the unknown word went with the unknown toy. Exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, and I do think that really hits upon your other the the other question that you asked just a few minutes ago about you know what are what are the limits of the dog, you know I mean and 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 what are their capabilities and, 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 and really speaks to what we were talking about earlier with, we don't actually know what their limits are. Um, but I think there's a huge benefit to, to adding the naming to it. We do it tons. Mm-hmm. And, and, and now, um, because we've named and rewarded for all the yawning, all the stretching, all the, um, actually we have our, our little puggle who, um, will come up and stretch the front and stretch the back and she will yawn and she'll just keep <laughs> doing it until we are like, <laughs> well, so I think the key to all that, especially as it relates to like the diabetic alert dog, if you take a dog who's doing natural alerts and just take your case of the yawning, the real function of, of us responding to it, whether we use a word or we use some other signal. Um, what the signal is, is not really important. What's important is that we respond to it in a way that takes something that the animal was naturally doing, but not necessarily terribly aware of. I love it. Yeah. Or didn't necessarily have a clear purpose in doing it. And now we connect it to a greater level of awareness and a greater level of purpose. Well, and actually, that's exactly how we created it in our dogs. Um, they weren't necessarily aware when they were yawning or stretching that it was a big deal to us until we until we named it and, and well, right. highlighted and, it for them. And the reason that became useful is because now they are more aware of it, so they can use it for their own purposes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was the case all along that occasionally... Ruby would yawn or stress after or stretch after a stressor mm-hmm. as she was coming down, but by us naming and rewarding it, um, she actually started to do it during the stressor mm-hmm. and to help herself. Well, that's what ended yeah. up what we ended up teaching her is that you right. could actually use this even at the beginning of the stressor to keep yourself from getting more stressed. So her natural way of it happening. Um, wasn't super useful to her, 
but through us drawing attention to it and reinforcing it and by naming it, we could actually ask for her to do it at a time that it would be helpful to her. And through that, she's learned, oh, actually, if another dog comes around that I'm a little uncomfortable with, if I just stretch, I'll feel better. Initially, the reason she would stretch and the reason it make her feel better is because I'd say yes and reward her. Right. <laughs> but as we thinned out the rewards, she still found it reinforcing internally. And now she does it for her own intrinsic reason mm-hmm. instead of for our extrinsic reason. Yeah. And I think it's worth saying, you know, when we talk about um, using the relaxation um, triad that we use in, uh, in, in training between the ears, um, a lot of what we're trying to do with the dog is to teach the dog how to moderate its own emotions mm-hmm. so that in difficult times, it knows how to relax itself and it can utilize these skills on, on its own. And and this is at its core an important piece of solving things like um, separation anxiety or, um, or just discomfort with things in the environment like fireworks and storms. If you're not home during a storm, how can you help your dog? But if you teach the dog how to relax on his own when he needs it and he then knows how good it feels to use that skill, then he will choose to do it at times where he can't actually get the help from you to do it um, and and doesn't need it from you anymore. Yeah, I think a great uh, metaphor for that is if you had a child who had anxiety mm-hmm. and every time he had anxiety, you know, you said, well, come hold mom's hand or, you know, sit on my lap or whatever. That could be really helpful. They, they could feel better. Uh, and that, of course, is a big argument in the behavioral community, but that could feel better than not doing it. Um, but what we're trying to do is get to where how could you help yourself feel better when mom's not there to hold your hand mm-hmm. or hold your lap? Mm-hmm. So, of course, you begin at the beginning. You be- begin with things you can do to help the animal while you're there. But by conceptualizing that really the core transference that you're trying to make is from extrinsic motivation to intrinsic motivation, um, that really just puts your training into a whole different light makes you think differently about it. So we're not trying to tell the animal to stretch because we want to always tell the animal to stretch so that that'll make it feel better. We're using that as a bridge to the animal being able to figure out that it could do it on its own for its own purposes. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter what we think of it. It doesn't matter whether we're there or not. Yeah. They can just work for them on their own. And it sort of brings up for me um, one of the real pet peeves I have about people who say, you know, don't touch the dog when the dog is upset and Mm -hmm. don't give the dog any comfort. And I Mm -hmm. think I do understand that, you know, you don't want to fall into a trap where you always have to have your hands on the dog or that you're creating a needy dog. But you You have to start somewhere. (laughs) And and isn't it really very humane to try to (coughs) offer some relief to an animal who's in distress and then build them up so that then they can work through it on their own? But I mean, I mean, what do you do with the dog who's in high distress? Well, and, you know, I mean, so the fundamental thing comes down to are you helping the animal? You're hurting it. Are you making it more dependent or Uh more reactive or are you making it less so? And that really comes down to learning about the hows and whys of it. It's not a, a yes or no. Right. Um, you know, I like to use the example, if you had a, a little kid that for whatever reason was afraid of people in purple hats, if every time they saw someone in a purple hat, um, you scooped them off the ground and rocked them in your arms and all, 
Well, in the very beginning of that, that probably would be better than than not doing it, than just leaving the kid to flip out and teach them that they could, you know, look to you for help and trust you to some degree. But there's no question if you kept doing that at some point, you're going to be um, creating a very emotionally unbalanced child or, or mm-hmm. making it worse. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a beginning point, it could be great because now you could work up to something where you might say, just to leap forward a bit, hey, let's go see if we can find some people with purple hats. And when we see them, we're going to raise our hands and we're going to scream and run down the street. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, somebody might look at that and go, oh, my God, you're going to teach the kid to run away from it, screaming and waving his hands. That's crazy. Well, that's the behavior. Mm-hmm. What is the emotional state of the kid going to be if you do that? If you made a game of it, then they're playing a game and they're feeling and thinking about it very differently. So, you know, you could label it as the same behavior, but emotionally it's radically different. Right. Well, and I think I think one of the issues, too, is that people can't conceptualize progression, that they think that you'll always be doing this. You'll always be helping the dog in the same way. Yeah. You'll always be using food forever for everything. And they can't really conceptualize. You know, we have this um, thing that we in, in, in TBTE, one of our, our, our golden rules is, you know, give as much help as the dog needs and never more. And um, and. And they can't always conceptualize what that journey looks like in the training process, that what you feed for in the beginning isn't what you are going to continue to feed for. Part of learning and helping the dog progress is knowing how to fade things and similarly mm-hmm. knowing how to fade helping the dog relax. Yeah. Um, so it's a super important part of the process. And rather than to throw the whole food thing out the window or the whole relaxation thing out the window because all of a sudden you're going to have to do it forever. If you can conceptualize that these are just pieces of the process that you're going to fade. And this this actually defines a big distinction between the two communities. Um, you know, almost everybody on, on the positive side has done free shaping. Mm-hmm. It certainly is becoming more common on the force-based side that people have, and that's becoming much more common in canine training and whatnot. But if you've never done free shaping and you come from the force-based community, think about it. In the force-based community, the beginning looks like the end. <laughs> when, yeah. you know, when you yeah. teach a dog to sit, it's a sit. And if your end goal is I'm going to make you sit right. while the motorcycle goes by and I'm going to make you be quiet while the motorcycle goes by, then the end looks just like the beginning. So when somebody says to you, well, I'm just going to throw food at the dog or, you know, whatever it might be, um, you immediately look at that and you say, well, that's stupid. That would be the wrong thing to do. Mm-hmm. But for people that have done free shaping, it's much easier for them to conceptualize, oh, yeah, the beginning often doesn't really look much at all like the end. Um, mm-hmm. It's simply an entry point or a direction. And, you know, I like to talk about this, that, um, sometimes the wrong direction is better than no direction. I would rather reward a dog for running away from me than have the dog just quiver and stay still. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. if it runs away from me and I turn my bridge and I throw a piece of food past it and it can go eat that piece of food, it's starting to learn that, hey, there's an interaction here and things can lead to rewards. Um, but, you know, so many trainers get so hung up on, well, no, it has to come towards me to get the food. Well, why? All you want to do in the beginning is teach a communication mm-hmm. um, and that things could lead to good results. So the very different ways of, of thinking about things. Fortunately, more and more of that is is bleeding into the force-based or balanced world. 
And a lot of that has come from the competitive training, you know, things like free shaping a retrieve to a dog and whatnot. Um, you know, when I was first involved in Schutzen, you would have been set on fire and run out of the community if you tried to teach somebody that. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Um, but that really teaches you a fundamentally different way of looking at, you know, behavior and changing animals that the beginning step doesn't have to really look much at all like the end. It just has to be an entry point to move in that direction. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Ivan, you talked about early on, um, I think at the very beginning of the of our conversation, you talked about, um, you know, this idea that we we like to um, work in the realm of 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 um changing how a dog feels about its world and i'm reminded of this comment that one of our clients made one day they had uh, they had a super reactive hound and they had used an e-collar on the hound for a long time and and, and we're, we're certainly not here to say that we object to the use of e-collars e or anything um but what the client said to us was so interesting they said you know in all the training that we did prior to working with you all um, it was, you know, we, 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 we handled the behavior, we changed, we, we the, changed behavior. the behavior, but we didn't actually change how the dog felt we about the thing. We didn't change her opinion. <laughs> and I thought that was, um, really at its core, like, mm -hmm. like what we want to do. Yes, we could stop a particular behavior by using an e-collar or mm -hmm. something else, but our real goal is to is to change it so that when the dog sees the thing that it used to get really triggered by, it actually looks at it and says, oh, hey, that's super cool, which is a totally different expectation and a different perspective than it had before. Well, and that dog was a perfect example. In fact, they had two dogs. They had a really big pit bull. Um, and basically what they had been taught was to use the e-calls to make the dog stay on place when people would come in. For the pit bull, mostly because he was a big dog and he would go, you know, shove people around and bounce on them and whatnot. And he was a huge licker, which a, would be uncomfortable. He was a big licker, but he was a very anxious licker. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and for the hound, she would bite people. Not badly, but she would bite them. Mm -hmm. And um, when we were done training, both of those dogs would be very happy to have somebody come in. And they were well behaved. They, they knew what was acceptable and what was not acceptable. And they didn't have to be told. And uh, it was interesting. The pit bull was no longer anxious, and so he didn't lick people like a lollipop. And neither of them jumped on people, but they were super happy to greet people. They understood there was a boundary around the front door, which was important because both of them were really mad door dashers before. And the pit bull wanted to kill things. Um, so it was really important he didn't get out to the neighborhood where he could do that. And, uh, and we eventually resolved that stuff, too. But... That whole thing in the beginning, they had a way to control the dogs, but the dogs were both nervous wrecks for their own reason, and the people always had to control the dogs. Mm -hmm. And somehow they had come across something of ours, and they were like, wow, like, if I'm understanding what you're saying right, you think these dogs could change. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, that would be the whole point. Why well, go through all this exercise <laughs> otherwise? Yeah. And so the, the, you know, the hound dog got to where she loved people coming in and thought it was great. And the pit, you know, was largely of that perspective to begin with anyway. But they were both, you know, calm in a nice active way, you know, not like they had to act like they were in church. Um, and they understood certain uh, conceptual boundaries, you know, behaviors they can't do. They both used to jump all the heck over people. 
and um, and they liked it, so it was really neat. Well, the other thing about the hound was that she really didn't like to be touched very much. She didn't like being touched at all in the beginning. She was like autistic, and, right? And <laughs> so, how do you how do you teach a dog to be touched? Really, I mean, using some other methods. By using a lot of relaxation and stuff, um, she just started she became to a bug. <laughs> yeah, she just organically just started to change and to feel very differently even about touch. So it wasn't even that she became friendly towards people and just chose not to bite them. She actually was happy about them and wanted to be touched by them, which was a complete change. Yeah, she very much liked her owners in the beginning. I mean, they'd had it for years, but she didn't really like being touched much by them. And not that they couldn't touch her. But, you know, she didn't really like it, and she didn't like getting petted. It would get her very agitated. And uh, in the end, I mean, it was really fun doing our last couple lessons where she'd be climbing up on their lap, um, you know, and falling asleep with her head in their lap. Yeah. Um, and, again, you know, people think, you know, what is training? Well, we never taught the dog that, hey, right, this is right. what you have to do to get a reward. Come up here and pretend like you like it and lay in my lap. <laughs> so. Hmm. I think the real importance of TBTE is we can teach people exactly how to do it. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not a sort of kind of thing or something dependent on, you know, one person having a particularly good feel for a dog. Or, or um, a particular energy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I think the really key thing that, that our students, you know, our professional students have found exciting about TBTE is that we can actually explain exactly how we did it and teach another person how to do it and how to do it with a different dog. You know, a dog that's not exactly this dog, but is somewhat different. So for us, and that's really what we've been working on refining so much over the last three or four years is, as we've been doing a couple hundred seminars, is not so much um, changing the training, although, you know, that's certainly improved some, but really... Um, primarily me figuring out how to explain and teach how you do it more. <clears throat> there was a woman who ran a rescue group that I used to do a lot of work for years back. And she used to say all the time that I had a magic touch with dogs. And it used to irritate the hell out of me. I said, no, I actually don't have a magic touch with dogs. By nature, I'm not the person or the personality type that dogs would be most comfortable with. In fact, I'm probably a little bit more to the opposite of that. And the reason it used to irritate me is because I was always trying to teach her how anyone could do the same things that I do. That it really wasn't any kind of innate personality thing or, or you know, whatever. And um, Stephanie really drove me to start doing these seminars and start really defining the training for people more. And that's what's really gotten us to this point where... We get messages all the time on our private groups or people sending to them of, you know, trainers been training for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and, you know, maybe for the last year or so they've been doing TBTE, and where they've done something just exactly like we did with those dogs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, needless to say, they're like over the moon excited about it. But to me, that's where the real core excitement is, because who cares if it, as one individual in the world I can do these really neat things? What's really going to change the life of, of dogs and people writ large is the idea of being able to codify these things and really be able to put them into clear instructions and understand the principles behind them. So that's really where, where I think our 
primary focus is. And for me personally, that's what gets me most excited is, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, I'm 60 years old, I'm not going to be here forever. Um, but that thousands of dogs could be getting helped even after I'm gone because other people can learn these same things and they can do them. Yeah. <clears throat> well, as trainers, that's where the real benefit comes from. If we have, first of all, if, if we look at every dog as being more different than similar, um, then how to train them becomes a million different answers to the same question, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, as opposed to more like the same answer to a million different questions. And, you know, I, I try not to tell people um, exactly what to do or exactly when to do it. Mm -hmm. But what I want to teach people is that there are knowable principles behind it. Yeah. And you take this set of techniques and you use them based on this set of principles, you can come up with the or a correct answer. It's not always the correct answer, but a correct answer. Something happened to the recording at that point, but I think Mark was making the point that you can come up with an answer at a particular time and a, under a particular set of circumstances and kind of figure out what to do according to known principles. Whereas a lot of dog owners will say, well, what do I do when my dog does this? In my view, he's giving them the tools to answer their own question. It's a very empowering way of looking at dog training. It's a very different way than a lot of dog trainers work. They just come in and claim, you know, I'll fix your dog and I'll fix your problem. Instead, he's empowering the dog, and he's also empowering the dog owner. And now, here's the final part of our interview with Mark and Stephanie McCabe from Training Between the Ears. Something that you, you blew me away with today that is just a big deal is when you were talking about the dog pushing the buttons and creating sentences. Yeah. Um, it's really shocking to me that a dog would actually ask the question why yeah that they could understand it yeah yeah um you know it's interesting uh there was a parrot named alex um i think alex has passed away but um alex's owner was fairly famous for teaching alex like i don't know a thousand words or something like that and there was a lot of discussion at the time, and I'm not a linguist and I don't play one on TV, but, you know, was the animal just learning a set of words or was it actually learning language? And, you know, back to the point that you had made earlier about how animals can become interconnected, um, animals have language to begin with, it's just not necessarily spoken language. Mm -hmm. um, so to presume like they only have language if they learn our words and learn <laughs> how to use them the way we use them is a pretty hubristic way to look at what, what is language, what is communication. But I do think that for me, the most interesting thing in this dog, I can't remember the dog's name, but we, we do have the video up on our um, Facebook page, Training Between the Ears, um, was why. And the dog used why a lot. <laughs> And it actually came across very much like when you think about, I don't know if you know the comedian uh, C.K. Lewis. Mm -hmm. He's got a great little bit on this, but lots of comedians have done it. You know, about how annoying it can be when little kids ask why. Mm -hmm. You know, because you say, you know, uh, you know, well, we got to go to bed right now. Why? Mm -hmm. Well, because we have to get up in the morning. Why? 
You well, have to put your seatbelt on. Why? <laughs> well, so, so, but Ivan, haven't you had times where you've said no to a dog and then they've looked at you funny like, really? <laughs> I've had that, yeah. Yeah. Well, especially in the kind of work that you do where, um, you know, it's so purpose-driven, you know, that the service dogs have to really get to where they understand their purpose. That's the fundamental why. It's not... You know, in the end, I mean, you can get lots of dogs that have a great nose and you can do the primary detection work and they can do great, but they don't necessarily give a shit that the person's blood has gone low. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where the why comes in. So that's what I thought was fascinating with that one dog. That oh, it's was definitely cool. interesting. You know, lately I've been actually doing way more behavior modification and doing a lot more like exercises like weight pulling to help me with those kind of dogs actually uh-huh did you ever look into grc that i mentioned i sure did yeah yeah cool. i liked it yeah jay has a lot of fun with that stuff There's a lot of neat stuff in that um and actually part of what's neat about grc is um you know that there are multiple drive sports that they do in that so some of them involving you know tug play and biting on things and jumping up walls and running on a slap mill and all so um, mm. it's kind of neat when you think about the benefits that you can get for some dogs in the weight pull. If you have another dog that, you know, just isn't interested in that or can't do that, that you may be able to find other activities that fit a similar purpose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like it. I love it. So thank you guys so much for coming on. Uh, links, you feel free to shout out the website if you want, but links will be in the description. And uh, I appreciate it. Cave <laughs> Mark that sounds great, Ivan, and we Markham will... .com or Google TBTE. You'll find all kinds of stuff from us if you Google TBTE or if you go on to YouTube and search for TBTE. Mm -hmm. You'll come up with all that. So, And we had a lot of fun talking with you. You're yeah, a great host. absolutely. And we will share this as well. Yeah, I appreciate it. That concludes our interview with the geniuses at markmccabe.com. Definitely check out their system, Training Between the Ears. Hi, lovely people. Thank you for listening to Dog Wizardry, voted most original podcast on the internet. Contact us and be part of the next conversation. Te amo. Voted most original podcast on the internet. We'll see you next week. Or write us and join the conversation. Mwah.